So the theme is working with judgments. I believe that this is one of the um, great topics of our practice, particularly uh, in the West. It's certainly on the list of most people's top five, (laughs) along with um, anger and um, bringing practice to intimate relationships. Uh, I know when I've uh, sometimes given talks on other, other topics and we just happen to talk about judgments, everyone wants to talk about them. <coughs> and so it's really, uh, I believe it's really one of the keys to our practice as uh, Westerners with the particular background and conditioning that we have. And so in this talk uh, this morning what I want to do is to go into three areas related to judgments. The first is to say why working with judgments is important. The second, what's the nature of judgments? And third, uh, how do we work with judgments? And I'll, I'll come to a definition just in a moment about what I, how I want to use the term judgments. But just to give it some flavor, I want to uh, start by, by um, start with this first part of, of, of um, asking why, are, why is it important to work with judgments? Well, the first answer I would give is that judgments are everywhere in our minds and our experience. They're just all around, everywhere, omnipresent. Sometimes we think that's, that's all we are. So I want to give some examples, some from my own experience and some from the collective experience, just to give the flavor of judgments. Okay. Judgment number one. Um, I'm caught in a traffic jam going from Marin to the East Bay. And that little, that little, pl- uh, that little uh, piece of road between 101 and the bridge. Everyone knows that, or most people do, okay? The two lanes are totally stopped. I'm in, I'm in the uh, right-hand lanes, two, lane, two lanes going towards the bridge. I see someone cut in right before me, having, come, having driven down uh, the breakdown lane. Cuts in right before me. <laughs> Pretty equanimous, <laughs> fairly equanimous. Then another person comes speeding down the breakdown lane. And I start hearing my mind talking about how some people are just selfish and, and self-centered. And I notice I start saying, yeah, and our culture is just sort of going down the slippery slope towards more selfishness. And anyway, it starts, on, it starts a little roll in my mind. And another car goes by <laughs> in the breakdown lane. And finally, the traffic starts going. I see one of the cars uh, whose drivers I had formed a judgment about is in the breakdown lane next to another car, which has actually broken down and is helping. Mm. (laughs) Judgment number two. This is again personal. Um, About three years ago, I ended a period uh, 
of about nine years of teaching at the graduate school where I still teach. And I was a little uh, burned out. I had been chair of the whole faculty for two years previous to that. And I was tired and I felt in many ways like I wanted to mm, shift my work some. And I went, uh, at that time I went on leave for a year. And during that time I did the two month retreat up, up the hill. Near the beginning of the retreat, I found myself uh, judging myself harshly for not prioritizing spiritual practice more. You can imagine the voices. I mean, you may have similar voices in your own mind, but for me, they were voices like, you know, what were you doing those nine years? You know, <coughs> school isn't so spiritual anyway, you know. You know, what, were you, what are you doing there? You know, you should be doing this. Look at these people. They did it right. You know, you know that one? Those, you know, they're always exemplars, right? Who got it right and we kind of blew it. And it's, and it's sort of like I, I found myself judging myself harshly as sort of having blown it spiritually. I should have done this, you know. And it was um, quite harsh at times. So that's sort of a collection of uh, judgment, judgments number two. Okay. Judgment number three. President Bush <laughs> speaks scornfully about Osama bin Laden and calls him evil. Osama bin Laden speaks scornfully about President Bush and calls him evil. And from those judgments, we know all sorts of um, conflicts spring forth. Many people I know make scornful judgments about both President Bush and Osama bin Laden, <laughs> you know? And so it's, that's a third, kind of a third set of judgments that, that we, we find ourselves amidst. Another judgment just from up the hill of a, of a smaller nature is um, someone's just walking by here, someone rings the bell and thinks to himself, that was a really wimpy bell ringing. <laughs> I could do it better. <laughs> okay. these, are all, these are all true stories, but you get the flavor of judgment. Now, the way um, I like to define judgments, and I'll be primarily focusing on negative judgments, but one way that, that I can define them is to say that there's a some kind of observation or comment, let's say an observation or um, noting of some state of affairs followed by a strong evaluative component. Now, I, I think that evaluation can be either positive or negative, but I'm going to be primarily focusing on the negative evaluation. Sometimes I like to think of judgments as some kind of noting or observation or insight followed by an emotional sledgehammer, you know, which can be directed towards ourselves or to others. And it can, again, it can be in this range of the more minor judgment about the bell ringing all the way to harsh self-judgments about self, you know, all the, all, the, all the way there. Now, another reason why it's really important to work with judgments is that they are deeply pervasive in our culture. And they may be more pervasive in our culture 
than in other cultures. There seem to be ways in which our culture has developed what, we, what in uh, psychological language is called the superego more than in other cultures. I think that we find this kind of harsh self-judging, particularly, in ways in contemporary Western culture, and particularly in contemporary America, that we don't exactly find elsewhere. Uh, there is a story which you may have heard about the Dalai Lama being asked a question by a young man about saying, I just don't feel worthwhile. And the Dalai Lama expressed a lot of um, confusion even about the question. It went back and forth with the translator a few times. And he finally got it. And he, and he said, you know, this is not so common in our Tibetan culture. But what you say about yourself is completely untrue. You are worthwhile. And he was a little bit confused about that quality of self-judging. And I know that other Asian teachers haven't recognized that quality of self-judging so easily from their experience in their home countries. So there, I think there's something that's about our culture. And I don't think it's completely negative. I think it may have something to do with a quality of individuation that brings with it certain perils, rather than simply being this just this big problem with our culture. That, that's speculation, and, and we might want to look at that in the discussion. But I just want to uh, note that the, the, I think there, there may be more judging as part of our personalities in this culture, but it's something surely that, that all of us have to, have to deal with. There's a way in which, in our culture, blaming, judging, and self-righteousness are very rampant. And so we get it, as it were, <clears throat> as it were with our upbringing. We get, we get that it's okay to engage in this kind of blaming and judging. And we get it also um, in a way that we often judge ourselves, that we have this... Uh, we have this upbringing, again, which we could analyze more in more detail psychologically, but we have this upbringing in which it's very common to judge. And we learn to judge ourselves to make sure, for example, that we are performing in the right way so we will get the love of our parents, for example. So it's a very deep conditioning in our culture. People often love to judge so much, and it's so close to our sense of identity about who we are, that we can often keep judging even though it brings us into great danger. Uh, one of my favorite cartoons is a cartoon which shows an epitaph. And it has, I think it has a little picture of a driver. And on the epitaph it says, he had the right of way. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> so there, there are ways in which we um, hold that sense of righteousness, even when it brings us into suffering, even when it brings us into, into peril. In spiritual traditions, as we know, working with judging is often right at the center of, uh, of what spiritual practice is seen to be about. We all know, I think, the phrases from the New Testament where, where the teaching about working with judging is, is very central. Jesus says, 
let one without sin cast the first stone, suggesting that, that if we really came to grips with our judging and worked through it, we would realize that we're all susceptible to judging and we would let go of that judging and come more to love, come more to loving kindness. That there's something about judging which is missing our basic nature, which is missing that quality of love and our, our, our depths, really, that's getting caught in something a little more superficial. And there's also this, um, I think, quality of mercy in that notion that we're all have, um, we all have weaknesses, we all have limitations, we all don't perform perfectly. We're all susceptible to being judged. And if we really could know that instead of judging incessantly, we might take a different attitude, which would be to be more kind and more merciful. And we'll talk further about that when talking about working with judging. You know that famous uh, phrase from Matthew where, where Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged, because the judgments you give are the judgments you will get. And the amount you measure out is the amount you will be given. Why do you observe the splinter in your brother's eye and never notice the plank in your own? Mm. How dare you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own? <laughs> Hypocrite! <laughs> take the plank out of your own eye first, and then you will see clearly enough to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. And it, it reminds me of this uh, notion which uh, is in the psychology of Jung, that a lot of our tendencies to judge others come from unacknowledged places in ourself. And he says somewhere that our tendency to judge others comes from not seeing certain things in ourselves which cause us to project our own ignorance outwardly, forming demons. That's a paraphrase, more or less, that we tend to project and demonize outwardly that which we don't know in ourselves. And it's very consonant with that quote I just had from, from Jesus. And in Buddhist practice, it's also very fundamental to, to look at, at, at judgments, both in the meditation practice and in, in, in the, the wisdom teachings. There is this... Um, basic teaching, which I don't know if Sylvia has, has worked with you on, it's a teaching called Papancha, which is sometimes translated as conceptual proliferation. And it's a teaching about how our minds go somewhat wild in judging, in speculating, in, in having all sorts of ideas. And the essence of this conceptual proliferation is said to be conceit or a self-centeredness, a kind of craving wanting something, and having attachment to our views. We could think of judgments as really involving those three components. Uh, a certain quality of self-centeredness and conceit, attachment to views, and as it were, a need to be right for some reason, or a need to be at the center of things, some kind of grasping after our own uh, standing, our own self-righteousness, 
our own uh, being at the center of things and being right. And I, I really think, I know when I've looked at judging and looked at my own conditioning, in a way I think it was a setup, you know? And maybe you can identify with this, but I think it really comes close to this notion of, of this um, emphasis on conceit and craving and views being at the center of things. I think that I, my conditioning that I got was to be a good boy. What does it mean to be a good boy? It means to be doing things in the right way and be acknowledged by the authorities to be acting in the right way. I also found that it, it helped a lot if other people could be categorized as not doing the right thing. <laughs> and so it, it became, you know, what, so what did it mean to get the conditioning to be a good and nice boy? It, it was to perform and judge myself as good and right, and of course being, being in extreme peril of judging myself as not being good or not being right, and being in peril of others judging me as not good or not right, particularly those I gave power to, and then having a vested interest in others being judged as bad and wrong. I don't know if anyone else has had that, maybe. <laughs> but it, when you reflect on that, you can see the dynamic that's set up. And I think we can also have some, some compassion for that, because it's a deep dynamic that I think, uh, judging by the laughter, I'm not the only one. <laughs> and, and that is, is very common. And so in, in Buddhist practice, there's this emphasis on learning how to work with craving and learning how to work with views and learning how to work with the uh, quality of self-centeredness. Uh, and I'll just read one quotation from the suttas which talks about this practice of, of working with these elements. This is from the Sutta Nipata and the Buddha says, Do not form views in the world through either knowledge, virtuous conduct, or religious observances. Likewise, avoid thinking of oneself as being either superior, inferior, or equal to others. So it's, there's no refuge in equality. Equality is still using the reference points. Okay. That's radical, right? That's pretty radical. He, then the Buddha goes on to say, the wise let go of the self, and being free of attachments, they depend not on knowledge, nor do they dispute opinions or fix upon any view. For those who have no wishes for either extreme, there is no conflict with the views held by others. They do not form the least notion in regard to views seen, heard, or thought out. How could one influence those wise ones who did not grasp at any views? Unless you think that that's a sort of a far-off ideal, uh, I think that we have moments in which we experience that. And it's, it's actually also something that is, is a direction to this notion of, of not having these views, not having this self-centeredness. It's really something that is a, a long-term direction. And I know for myself, it was very helpful to reflect some on one of the models uh, which we find in Buddhist teachings, which is the model of the Ten Fetters, which is a, it was a sort of a developmental model of the stages that one by which one comes to uh, realization. And 
the model is one of 10 uh, sort of obstacles to seeing clearly and having an open heart that are gradually let go of at different stages of development. And some of you may know there are four main stages of enlightenment in this tradition. The stage of the stream-enterer, the stage of the uh, once-returner, just one more lifetime, then it gets done. <laughs> you know, the non-returner and the arhat, or the fully realized one. And in each of these, certain fetters are let go of. One of the fetters that's connected with judgments is called conceit. You know, it's, it's that term I used before, which is sort of this self-centeredness that could lead to judgments. Now, conceit doesn't fall away until the final stage of realization. What that means is that you can have very developed people who've had all sorts of spiritual openings, awakenings, insights, enlightenment, who still have a lot of conceit. And you could have, um, why, the way I like to think of it, you could have two um, non-returners sitting up in a panel discussion, each of them thinking, I'm a better non-returner than that one. <laughs> And when I, when I got that, there was something that was very uh, reassuring about that. Because sometimes I tend to think, oh, spiritual teachers, really conceited, you know, got a lot of insight, but, oh. And, I, and I, sometimes in my mind I would just judge harshly a person and reject the person. Maybe you've done the same. But when I could see, oh, well, it's completely natural for quite developed people to be somewhat conceited and to have judgments it made it more, uh, it made it more like we all have this and it's a practice to work on it. And it was really, uh, some, there's something that was, I was very happy to know that deeply wise people could have problems like that, you know? It made me able to re relate to my teachers in a different way. And, and, and just to see that these judgments go deep. It's almost like at the last stage these fall away. So how to look at judgments. What are judgments? What, what, do we, um, what do we find when we actually look at judgments? And here I want to talk uh, some about my own practice and, and as a way of more or less communicating what I've found when I've looked at judgments. And then I'll, I'll finish by talking about ways of working with judgments and try to give you some very specific tools that you could take home with you. Uh, to add to your repertoire that you may already have <laughs> for working with judgments, because we all try to, try to work with them. So uh, for many years in my practice, I mostly worked with judgments through mindfulness. That is, when I, when I had judgments in my mind, I would just note judgments in some way. And, I, and that, that's very, very helpful, because it begins to create a space around the judgments. And I came to, uh, especially on retreats, but also in daily practice, when I would judge harshly, I would just, I would say judgment. I would say judgment number one, judgment number two, self-judgment, you know, and I would just note it and keep coming back to the breath and keep coming back to uh, the main object of meditation. And that's really valuable and starts us to get acquainted with the amount of judgment in the mind. But I think it was, uh, and, and also to see how the judgments look, how 
so often, as, as was pointed out in those quotations, in some of the quotations, often we judge others in places where we feel vulnerable. Often we, feel, we judge others in ways of compensating for something in ourselves. And I could start to note, oh, why am I judging this person so much? Does it say something about myself? And I could start to do some kind of inquiry into the nature of the judgments. A few years ago, when I, when I did that long retreat that I talked about at the beginning and was uh, up there on the hill for about two months, I, when, I, when, we, when I noted those judgments that were related to myself and what have you done with those years, you know? Um, I was working with John Travis, who I think is a wonderful teacher about, uh, about working with judgments, if you have a chance to work, to work with him. And John suggested a practice then, which I did in the two months and also in the, um, in, for about six or eight months later, which really represents a sort of sustained, uh, a sustained inquiry into judgments. And here, here's the practice that I did. At the end of every sitting, I would call forth the judgments that were that had been around for the last period of time. It might be for the last uh, day. Some of them were ones that were from the previous month. Some of them were ones that I brought into the retreat. And I just uh, would call those forth at the end of every sitting and would be with those judgments. And at first they would be on a more mental level. And then as things settled a little bit, I, I was instructed to be with the judgments in the area of the heart and the body. And I would hang out with the judgments. And I would do this practice maybe 10 or 15 minutes at the end of every sitting. And then I would also try to be with judgments in the same way when they arose spontaneously in the course of the day. So if I would have that judgment of, oh, you really blew it spiritually, I would watch my mind do its thing. Then I would go to the body and the heart and hang out there, hang out there and watch what was present. I would also do the same thing if I was on the food line. And for example, I remember sometimes, for example, when there was uh, um, Mexican-style meals, well, I thought they arranged the, uh, it sometimes led to these huge lines, you know, because everyone had to pick at, you know, 10 or 15 different condiments. And I made the line, and I, I would be there in the line, and I would say, they could really arrange that better, couldn't they? <laughs> so it would go more quickly. And I would, and then I would just go, I would say, oh, judgment. And then I would be with the thoughts, and then go to the body and the heart, and see what was there. And I did this every time it came up, and I did, it, I did that 10 or 15 minute practice maybe 10 or 12 times a day, over 60 days. And then at the end of that time, I continued to do that in my daily practice and in retreats. So it was probably doing, you know, so in the course of time, that was probably doing a sustained looking at judgments in those two months, maybe a thousand times, you know, and then continuing that practice. And I think that this is one of the, uh, I learned a lot, as you could imagine, even though I think we're, we're essentially somewhat dull creatures. <laughs> still, looking at something a thousand times, I learned something. And it's, I think it's one of the glories of our practice here that we can do this sustained inquiry, particularly in retreats, but also in daily life, 
where we focus and we were just say, I'm going to look at this. Whether it's judgment or anger or uh, joy or, or pain or suffering, we can just keep on looking at something over and over again. That this practice, we learn a lot by this sustained inquiry, observation, really watching. And when we do it with one particular pattern, we can start to really see things. And I'm sure many of you know this from your own experience. But for me, it's one of the glories that lets us actually see into deeply held patterns fairly quickly. And what I found, let me tell you what I found when I did that practice. I found that uh, there was indeed a kind of uh, idea, thought, concept, observation that was linked with a, uh, what I call the emotional sledgehammer. And so I actually came to see, and this is, this is anticipating a little bit the, the, the working with judgments, I came to see that actually it's not judgments that are the problem per se, but it's actually the fact that we take an observation or insight and for different reasons we attach this strong, often harsh evaluation. That often there was a lot of insight, but it was somehow brought, brought and connected with the sledgehammer. So I came to see that judgments involve both elements. And when one works with judgments, one can begin to separate them so that one keeps the insight and lets go of the sledgehammer. I think that's the core of working with judgments. Sometimes judgments are seen as just these negative things that we should drop, but I think they often carry intelligence. And if we just throw them away, we lose the intelligence. I think the work is to transform the judgments so that we keep the, the insights without the sledgehammer. You know, if I see, for example, if I see someone who may be acting rudely, I'm, you know, I can, if I have compassion, I can see the rudeness that's, and see, actually observe something and uh, still and act compassionately. If I'm judgmental, I'll see the rudeness and I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll just go off uh, really, really rude, you know, and, and, and it's hard to get into the fully judgmental voice here. <laughs> but I can, you know what I'm saying, you can really go off. And if I totally get rid of the judgments whatsoever, I get rid of my insight into the person's rudeness, which could be a source for compassionate action. And so I, that's, that's, pointing to, that's pointing towards what I'm going to say about working with it, which is to transform the judgments not to get rid of them. Now, sometimes in our circles here, people do act as if judgments are simply a problem. I don't, that's not what I found. I found that they carry some intelligence and wisdom, but they get mixed up with, they get mixed up with other motivation. Now, what I found when I went to the heart is that I found that there was all this verbiage, and for me, judgments would normally come with a lot of words, and ideas, but when I went to the heart, I found that there was actually pain there. And in a way, I found that the judgments themselves were covers for unacknowledged pain. In other words, the judgments that I looked at were a kind of defense mechanism for not really 
and an automatic and somewhat unconscious one for not wanting to go into some kind of pain. For me, it might be the pain of, in that situation, of sadness or loneliness or fear. But when I actually looked at each judgment, even the judgment about the food line, what was it when I, what did I find when I looked in my heart at the judgment about the food line? I found that there was some pain connected with impatience. And that that actually was driving the judgment. It was driving the, the harshness of it. And so what I found was that, and I think this was, uh, you know, I, in myself I could see that there was a certain old pattern that formed automatically whereby uh, in certain situations where I felt, uh, um, for example, um, where there was a certain kind of pain that was, was deep, related, to, for example, to not being seen, not being heard, not being recognized, that I would often automatically go to a judgment rather than feel that, that pain, feel that emotional or psychological pain. Do you know what I'm talking about here? That there was something that was, that was deeper than the words, and that when I actually went into each of those judgments, I found there was some pain. There was some pain connected with my judging myself about, um, about what I had done these years. And if I'm judging, I actually don't need to face that pain. Because then I can sort of assume a stance of moral superiority in which my problems are taken care of but I don't actually face the pain, hence the judgments are just going to keep on happening over and over again. And again, it's, I think, one of the glories and secrets of this practice, which if we actually go, sometimes go in with mindfulness and care into what's painful, we find that we can end repetitive patterns which have been happening for a very long time and actually transform sometimes quicker than we might imagine when we go into that pain. And so that really suggests, I think, the, the next uh, area I wanted to talk about in closing, which is uh, how to work with judgments. And there are a lot of ways of working with judgments, but I want to focus on three, two of which, in a way, I've talked about in talking about my own experience. The first kind, the first way to work with judgments, and I think that has to, really has to be the beginning for many of us, is the mindfulness practice using the labels, using the labels in our mind. When we're judging, just labeling judgment. And then coming back to the breath when they go away. Using the mindfulness to really see what's happening, to get some spaciousness around the, the thought patterns. And like I say, that was my practice for a good many years. There's this second practice, which I think is... Um, permits one to go deeper, and in some ways is not really um, disconnected from mindfulness, which, is, which I would call the practice of inquiry. It's using judgments as a starting point to look deeper. The practice of, and it's almost like taking uh, judgments as a welcome visitor that will permit one to look deeper and to work with oneself. It's really usually the opposite than we, than we uh, response than we have. It's like the Tibetan slogan 
in, some, in the te Tibetan teachings that some of you may know called the Lojong teachings, they have the slogan, transform all obstacles into the path of practice. Transform all obstacles into the path of practice. So it's to take, when we find ourselves being very judgmental to ourselves or to others, we can take that as a, uh, as a wake-up call to say, now is the time to start inquiry. And we can inquire by being with the mindfulness. We can do that practice of going into the heart, of just seeing what the judgment has to tell us, being with the heart, being with the body. There are a lot of ways to inquire. It doesn't have to be the way <clears throat> that I described. Sylvia, I'm sure, has told you one of her inquiry practices, which is when she feels caught in a knot, she starts talking to herself. You know this? <laughs> she does, but I'm sure she, she, she says, Sylvia, you're having a horrible time. Stop the verbiage. Just realize you're in pain. You know, and it's a kind of inquiry, because it's really going from the words, which are kind of taking oneself away from the lived experience, and going more deeply into the experience. And so I think we need to find ways to ways to do that inquiry, ways to take judgment and just sit with it. And you might want to do that as a daily practice. Maybe, maybe something like what I described, just take as a practice. At the end of your sitting, just ask, are there any judgments which have been around the last 24 hours? <coughs> Call them forth. Be with them at the level of the mind. When that settles a little bit, go to the level of the body and the heart. And if you do that over and over again, I'm sure you'll find something very similar to what I found. And the judgments also in that process get transformed, as I told you. Because what I found was that when I could be in touch with the pain that was connected with the judgments, the judgments didn't happen. And more and more there was the insight or the noting, but the judgments weren't there in the same way. For myself, I came to be so familiar in a way with the territory of judgment that I developed a very soft place in my heart for judgmental people, and I sought them out for a while. <laughs> I was thinking in preparing this talk that I actually, um, I should do that practice more now because I don't always welcome being around judgmental people now. But for a time, for quite a, quite a you know, maybe half a year, when I would meet judgmental people, it's as it were, because of familiarity with my own practice, I would go to, to their pain in their hearts and not be caught by the words, mm -hmm. not be caught by the language, but go more, because I knew that territory better, I would go to their pain, and that's what I would hear in being with them. I wouldn't, because the, the judgments are kind of a hook, aren't they? Mm -hmm. They hook us, and we sort of lose touch with the emotional reality and the larger reality. So. When, we, when we're familiar with that territory in ourselves, we can be so much more openly and lovingly with people who are judgmental because we don't get hooked so much. We say, oh, I know what that's about. And, and we, we, we don't have to defend ourselves so much. And we can just be more with that quality of the heart with the other person. And that really leads me to the third practice for working with judgments, which is the practice of metta which is the practice of loving-kindness, uh, which is in some way, you might say that the first two methods are, as it were, front-door approaches to working with judgments. 
It's really taking judgments as they come, working with them. The quality of metta, you might say, is a backdoor method for working with judgments because it's really giving the antidote to judgments in developing uh, the quality of love and appreciation first for ourselves and then for others. And you know from the, when you read the Metta Sutta, you see that in the, in the Sutta there are these beautiful lines where they talk about developing loving-kindness towards all beings, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, all the usual categories that lead to our judgments, you know. You might say, well, I don't like short beings, you know. I like tall beings, or I like, well, tall beings, I like medium-sized beings, people or whatever. So this quality of, of metta really helps us to work with our own heart and then gradually be able to extend the quality of loving-kindness towards others in a way in which we tend to see others equally. We, the, the love that's developed is a love that becomes more universal. Has everyone done meta practice here? I'm, I'm sure Sylvia does it a lot here, right? And so that's a practice, if you're finding yourself really judgmental, do meta practice as well. And so I think I want to leave you by saying, here are these three practices and see which appeal to you. And you may also find your own way to work with practice, but I think they have to have some variant of working with mindfulness, with inquiry, and then with cultivating loving-kindness. I think those are, the, and, and those, those are very powerful tools, very powerful medicine, as it were, to work with this, uh, with this deep um, way that we close off our hearts to ourselves and others. And I think, I believe that when we apply those tools, we can transform the energy of judgment so that we keep the intelligence and we transform the pain that leads to the harshness. And I think that 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 judgment transformed leaves us with that quality of intelligence and insight, spaciousness around the qualities of judgment, a lot of patience with judgment, and a quality of a warm heart in relation to judgment. And I think those qualities of spaciousness, insight, warmth, caring, those are anticipations of nibbana or nirvana. Those qualities are anticipations of the sacred. So I think when we work with judgment in a deep way, we anticipate what's holy or what's sacred. And we touch that in our own lives. And we come to know that even, even in small or limited ways. So, thank you. Thank you for your attention.
other questions or, or comments? Yeah. A question. Yeah. Um, it has to do with my practice. Yeah. And um, I did some, one little example of what it is that's, that's happened to me is that I've been, for the last several months, doing some volunteer work at hospice. Yeah. And um, the way it's set up is that I'll spend five hours there, and then I'm sort of done, and I can go, and there's no yeah. people who come. And I had actually made a commitment to do something right after that, and I was on my way out when one of the um, nurses' helpers, seeing me leaving, said to me, could you help me for a moment? Yeah. And I said to her, without thinking, I said to her, you know, I'm actually just done with my shift. Yeah. And I watched her response, which, which was a bit of frustration and actually a little disgust. Yeah. And um, all of a sudden what happened to me was that I realized, without actually going through the thoughts even, that I had a particular judgment about what I had done, mm -hmm. which was that it was not okay. Mm -hmm. Since I was still there, I should be mm -hmm. doing whatever, even though, in fact, in my mind, I was not there anymore. Mm -hmm. And that by making visible what was actually that moment's truth for myself, mm -hmm. which was that, in fact, I had separated, mm -hmm. it opened up for me another possibility, which is I could have that, mm -hmm. and then that could go. And that the very next moment, there could be another experience. And so I immediately turned to her and said, what can I do to help you? And I did it. Yeah. But the interesting piece for me was that there wasn't any guilt or shame about what had happened before. That I got to see, in fact, that was just my human response. And that was no better or worse than my second response. Yeah. And in that moment, there was just a second of freedom and liberation from the way I hold myself. Yeah. Thank you. Can you remind me of your name? I'm sorry. It's David. David, that's right. Um, thank you, David. It's. I think what it really points to is in our everyday life, these judgments come fast and furious, right? And we often can just be going about our day and a situation or a stimulus comes up and we, we almost feel like we've been ambushed. I know this, for me, often has happened in family situations or with people we're close to, right? Because you know, we're just kind of doing our thing, going along all of a sudden, <laughs> From, as it were, from left field, a judgment comes. And, and so I, I believe that one of, the, uh, one, of, one of the fruits of doing the practice with ourselves is we begin to be familiar with our patterns. That lead us to be either... Um, uh, shocked and hurt by judgments, or start making judgments ourselves, we start to see that it's actually a chain of events of which the first ones we're usually not quite aware of. And all of a sudden we find ourselves in this state. And often it's almost too late then because we've been, been sort of emotional, almost emotionally, uh, we feel emotionally wounded in some way. Do you know, what, you know what I mean? And so becoming familiar with the territory of judgments lets us have space around the judgments when they come, even in a quick way in daily life. You know, and of course, there's some situations which are going to be more charged than others and more difficult than others. But I know that a lot of my uh, 
uh, training and judgment came from being chair of the faculty and working with a, with a president who um, didn't listen, was very abusive, and uh, was hard to work with. And I found myself at first becoming very judgmental about him. And when I could actually look at the territory and see how there was some hurt there, like a hurt of, you know, I've just said something and he said something which indicates he hasn't listened at all, right? And there's something in me which feels, uh, which I find feels hurt there, you know. I don't feel like I was hurt or he's not listening. And that can generate, for me, that would, that my conditioning would be, that would generate a uh, withdrawal and judgment. Who is this guy? He's not listening, you know. And I would sort of withdraw in moral superiority and judge him. Now, if I'm in touch with the pain, I can be in touch with it. I don't have to go the way of judgment, and I can actually be more effective. I might say, I'm not sure you heard me, (laughs) you know. Uh, This is what I mean, this is what I was thinking, and it's it's important to me. So I, you know, so so that's that's where I can come from a different way. And so it's that awareness of the patterns of judgment helps us see in the ways just like you described, I think, to see with spaciousness and begin to take these daily life situations as training ground. Because we get a lot of opportunities with judgment, right? In, (laughs) In work, in family, right? You know, again, it's like I was talking about right speech. Sometimes we think, oh, I don't have enough time to practice. I have to work all the time. Well, <laughs> if you want to work with judgments, you have, you have a lot of opportunities, yeah. How does the Buddhist Peace Fellowship uh, work for peace without judging the administration? Yeah. yeah. It's a great question. and. I think the, the work with judgment is probably more of a practice, which means we don't eliminate all judgments, but that we, we, uh, we work with transforming judgments. And so I think it's not too different from what I described, that we, because the judgments can often carry intelligence, you know. You know, if I find myself uh, uh, judging a policy to be unjust, that could take form, that could take a lot of different forms. It could come with a lot of judgment and harshness, you know. I think it's, I think we need to, in that case, I would need to look carefully at whether I was polarizing and demonizing the opponent. Am I saying, I'm right, they're wrong, I have justice on my side, they're wrong or evil? In fact, not too different from what this reactive tendency, I believe, of our nation was, or at least the leaders, was to take the pain and just go into a kind of collective judgment, which wasn't acknowledging, uh, in some ways, in some ways it's actually going away from the pain. If one just hangs with the pain, it could lead in a different direction. Uh, And so it would be to uh, really see, are there tendencies to demonize the opponents? Or is there more attend? You know what? What I find is if I can be with the administration and just say, "Oh yeah, this is coming. This these attitudes are coming out of uh, a pain and uh, confusion, an attempt to do what's right in some ways, and it's not different from how I behave often. 
So I try to see am I, if I'm, how am I just like them? And it leads to a very different attitude. You know, I think one of the dangers of the um, so-called progressive or left movements is that they do demonize and they do polarize very often. And so I think looking at tendencies to separate and more the feeling is more we're all in the same boat together. And yet there are actions which come out of confusion and lead to further suffering. And one can say that without judging, I believe. And it's tricky how to do that. But I believe something like the individual work we do can be done on a more collective level. But I think for us it's a practice. We have to look at how am I, how am I polarizing? How am I being self-righteous? How am I judging them? And how can I take the... It's having the action come more out of compassion and wisdom, particularly compassion, as opposed to judgment. Because a, you know, a lot of the action, the demonstration, seems to come out of judgments and anger, right? But there's insight there. How can that insight be freed from the, that harsh judgmental quality because who wants to listen to a harsh demonstration, right? It's like Thich Nhat Hanh talks about, uh, he wrote something at the time of the Gulf War, some of you may know, he, he said, when can we send President Bush Sr. a love letter? But also being clear. Does that help some? Judgment to set priorities, and do we need to set priorities? Can you say that again? Set priorities. Do we need judgments to yeah. set priorities? Do we need judgments to set priorities? Okay. Here, I think I didn't talk about this, but there's there are many different ways that the English word judgment is used. We sometimes use judgment in a neutral way that doesn't involve that emotional sledgehammer that I was talking about. We sometimes use judgment as to say, uh, you know, uh, we're taking a trip tomorrow. It's my judgment that we should leave at this time to make the trip work. Okay? That's a neutral use of the word judgment, and it's not the usage that I was suggesting, which is this observation or noting followed by this evaluative component. So, we, yeah, we need all sorts of, um, we need, if you're, are you using judgment more in that sense? The, the sense of the, uh, just making a clear observation, or I'm, I'm, my question maybe is about more about setting priorities yeah. than how to do it and is judgment hard to do or not? Yeah. If you if we're using judgment in the more neutral sense, it's going to be a very important part of setting priorities. Judgment in the sense of observing, collecting the data, collecting the evidence, using our intelligence, making, uh, 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 making views of what might happen, and so on, just using our thought process in a constructive and careful way. Um, that would be an important part of setting priorities. Judgments in the sense that I've talked about ten, uh, this morning um, might well be the starting point for looking at priorities. In the example that I gave, you know, I was at a, uh, 
my judgments about the way I have spent these years were actually a key to um, telling me, you know, when I looked into them and, and separated the harshness from what the intelligence the judgment was giving me, I could see it would, the, the intelligence was, uh, at least at this point in time, I want my priorities to be elsewhere. That there's something else which is very important to me. Now that intelligence was coming through a judgment, which actually made it hard for me to actually set priorities. When it came in that form of the judgment, it was hard to set priorities. When I transformed the judgments, then I could, in this case, see more clearly, oh, I really feel pulled to do that. And that's what this is telling me. But it's hard to do that if I'm caught in self-recrimination, right? Does that help some? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the last question, and then we'll have to uh, do some announcements. Um, you mentioned that you know, much of the way you deal with judgments has to do with how you were raised as uh, yeah. a young child. Being a mother of an almost four-year-old, yeah. I'd be interested to hear how, you, how it would be done differently with that. I mean, teaching your children the difference between right and wrong and how to treat other people without using judgment. Yeah. Well. <laughs> well, if I knew, I could probably, if I knew in depth, I could write a book and I would have an alternative livelihood. <laughs> but uh, maybe, yeah, maybe I can say one thing and then there may be other people who might like to, like to uh, also respond. Um, I believe I might have told the story in terms of right speech. Did I tell the story of the, the, uh, the family that raised their child to... Uh, to basically see the problem with any given action being in the action and not the person. Mm -hmm. To use Christian language is to find that the problem is with the sin, so to speak. I hope this doesn't <laughs> trigger people, but, uh, but uh, the problem is with the sin, not the sinner. You know? So working with children to, uh, to let them know that they're okay, and I think that, that helps them helps prevent them identifying the action so much with the person. And so I think it's less likely to form this complex of, I'm good because I do this. I think it, it helps prevent that identification being too strong. And I know uh, Gil Fronsdale has talked about this. Uh, he's talked a lot about raising his children and trying to, trying to do things which uh, have clear ethical guidelines without this strong superego, I guess, is one way you can say it. Uh, and I think we may, one other thought, and then did you want to respond to that question too? Uh, only as a mother of two yeah. uh, reasonably squared away 20-year-old, 20-somethings. <laughs> uh, just examples of, of what you, you, uh, you just suggested, uh, that's a good job. Well done, good job, rather than good boy or good girl. Right. Right. And um, uh, I, I would say, well, uh, maybe this would be a better idea, or maybe this would be a better way to uh, to handle this situation, so that 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 when there's a, a, the, to take everything as a learning opportunity, to suggest something of a better way of doing something rather than saying that was wrong. But maybe this would, would be a better idea. 
I think it's partly to, to look at how in Buddhist practice, uh, ethics is worked with a little differently than how we, we brought up. They're not taken as these superego demands that, that punish us, which is an extreme interpretation of the Western uh, ethical guidelines. But they're taken more as guidelines that lead to certain results. And they're not things that we're expected to be perfect about. But you know, they're, 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 they're uh, precepts that we take on voluntarily because we know that uh, being uh, respectful in terms of not killing and not stealing helps us to develop qualities of love and wisdom that are, that are important for us. And so ethics has a little different meaning. They're not, they don't develop that sense of self in the same way. And so I think our own individual practice of ethics in a little different way then gets um, transmitted to our children or our friends, you know. Because it, it means that one can do ethics in a way with, without setting up the judge. One can be ethical without the strong judge. At least that's the direction. We dedicate the merit of our time together, whatever has been of value, whatever learning and insight and opening has occurred. We share that with all with whom we come in contact. We share that with all beings, knowing that we, like all beings, aspire towards understanding and freedom and the opening of our hearts and the transformation of the harsh quality of judgments. And so we wish in closing for the well-being of all we, with whom we come in contact. May all beings be happy. May all beings be safe and free from harm. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.